Well, coming up later this week, it's Veterans Day. And today on Savvy Citizen, we're talking with Kurt Geske, who heads our Veterans Services Office here in Gaston County. Kurt actually has a little bit of a unique role because he is a attorney and the only Veterans Service Officer in Gaston County who is. He's going to talk to us about kind of the unique role he's gotten to play on behalf of veterans here in Gaston County and why Veterans Day is such an important holiday for all of us. So Kurt Geske um, heads our Veterans Services um, now, what's the official title? Is it Veterans Affairs Services, Veterans Services? It's Department of Veterans Services or the Veterans Services Office. Okay. And how long have you been with Gaston County, Kurt? Uh, almost 10 years. Okay. So if you can, I'd like you to start with just a little bit about what it's been like for the VSO um, here in Gaston County over the last 18 or so months and, and trying to continue to serve the veteran population during COVID. Okay, because I can explain that we basically are providing all the same services. We just haven't been, because we have a, a tiny physical office, uh, you know, we have not been open to the public, but uh, people can still drop things off and whatnot in between mail, uh, telephone, email, and being able to drop things off. We provide all the exact same services. The only thing we don't do is live, you know, one-on-one meetings with clients. We, we, we actually, you know, have been known to meet with them on the front porch, six feet away, wearing a mask, okay. you know, to hand off a document or to answer a quick question, but for the most part, we're you know, just closed to the public and will be um, probably, uh, I won't say the foreseeable future, but we're about to undergo a major uh, renovation that's going to close the office for five or six months while they gut the building and, and redo it. So uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. It's actually timed relatively well because we've gotten used to in the last 18 months working from home, working remotely. And we're going to have to for a while because that's going to be, you know, there's going to be no physical place for us to work. The files will be offsite in the storage area. Everybody's pretty used to this with the exception of a, a few disgruntled people, people who, especially people who were not customers before clients of the, of the VSO. Uh-huh. Um, occasionally we have somebody who complains bitterly. They'll say this is open and that's open. This other thing is open. Yeah. And, you know, the people who were familiar with our office know that we have a postage stamp size waiting room. Mm. Yep. And, and also that, you know, meeting is not, it's not like going to the tax office and dropping a form off to somebody who's behind a glass wall. Instead, it's like you sit face to face across the desk for an hour talking to somebody. Yeah. So it's just not conducive to, uh, it is conducive to COVID-19. It's, you know, it's, it's perfect for spreading stuff. And, <laughs> and all of the people who work at the VSO are elderly like me. Well, also your population that you serve, I would think that they would be uh, mostly of a more vulnerable age. Um, is that accurate oh, or no? That was, the, that was the other issue that we, we said right at the outset was I said most of the uh, our, our, the people who come to see us skew older. A lot of the younger people were already in the habit of dealing with us by email or by phone because they have jobs. Right. And they, sure. they, they don't really have time to come and sit in the waiting room for an hour and talk to us. And so it's the older veterans and uh, – Virtually all of them, I mean, literally, I mean, literally all of them. That just, I mean, it's like uh, are are by definition high risk, right. at least for age, and then very likely for chronic health issues. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, between people who've gone through chemotherapy or actively getting treatment, and or they're diabetic, or they're you know got COPD, you know, like so, it's just not a place where you want to have people congregate until there is no more COVID nineteen. If you can, I'm curious, as we're coming up on Veterans Day, and this is probably a question that you've you've had before, but um, for people that maybe are are not really in tune with the military, 
you know, what is the difference between Veterans Day, Armed Services Day, uh, Memorial Day? Um, it, it, and, you know, when you're, when you're talking to a veteran, you know, do, do veterans get irritated when people kind of mix those up, kind of the purposes for each of those days? Basically, um, there are three veteran or military-related holidays. There's Veterans Day, there's Memorial Day, and there's uh, Armed Forces Day or Armed Services Day. Right. Um, and uh, Veterans Day, uh, a lot of people wonder why it was uh, or why it is we celebrated on November 11th and why so many things like over the Gaston County uh, Veterans Parade starts at 11 a.m. every every Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because Veterans Day, as you probably know, started as Armistice Day. Right. Following World War One in 1919, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was then president, wanted to commemorate the, uh, the fact that hostilities had ended the year before uh, at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month. November 11th, 1918 was the, the time of the armistice, which is not the official end of the war. That didn't happen until the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. But 1918, the guns stopped at 11, uh, 11 a.m. on the 11th of November. So he initiated, a, he basically did a proclamation that was Armistice Day. Um, and then while there were some un, informal uh, commemorations of that day for the next couple of years, in 1926, there was a congressional resolution that asked then-President Calvin Coolidge for an annual proclamation to commemorate Armistice Day. And that's, that was the beginning of it, like having an annual federally sort of directed, but not a federally mandated holiday, but a federally you know, established day of remembrance. Sure. Uh, in 1938, Congress made it official official by creating Armistice Day as a federal legal holiday. So a day when all the federal buildings and everything, everything's closed and everything shuts down. So that was 1938. Um, in 1945, uh, a World War II veteran named Raymond Meeks, who was later honored by President Reagan as being the father of Veterans Day. Uh, he was a World War II veteran. He began uh, lobbying for the creation of, of Veterans Remembrance Day. That's not like instead of calling it Armistice Day, to call it a Veterans Day and have it commemorate all veterans, all services of all time periods. Um, uh, since that's the government of the United States, it wasn't until 1954 that they actually passed a law and created Veterans Day. Uh, it was celebrated as National Veterans Day. Um, the uh, interestingly enough, Veterans Day hasn't always officially been on November 11th. Hmm. <laughs> kind of weird, but. In 1971, the, the uh, Congress decided that they wanted to create some more three- and four-day weekends. <laughs> I'm, I'm and here for that. so yeah. they, they passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, specifically moving stuff around so that uh, certain federal holidays that fell on anniversaries like November 11th, for a reason that could be on any day of the week, depending on that, that year's calendar, mm. would all be officially recognized on um, a particular uh, day so they could create uh, a holiday. So... Uh, in 1971, Veterans Day was moved to the fourth Monday of October. Hmm. Now, okay. most locations around the country still went ahead and had Veterans Day on November 11th. But the federal holiday, when everything shut down and was official recognition and ceremonies and whatnot on the federal level, was the, the fourth Monday of October from 1971 until 1978 when the, there was enough pressure that, like, this is stupid. There's a reason it's on November 11th. We really appreciate that inconvenience thing about, you know, not having it like on a match up with a weekend every year. But, you know, what the hell? It's November 11th. Right. The day that, you know, the, that's how it started was the end of the World War One. So um, anyway, uh, that's kind of interesting. They, they did restore it in 1978. And so now it is 
the 11th of November every year, regardless of what day of the week that falls on. Um, the uh, difference between the holidays, uh, Memorial Day was, like the name would imply, uh, to remember those who died in service. Um, and although now it, it was initially started as a day to say to remember people who died in service, so those killed in action or, or died, you know, uh, for whatever reason in service, but it mm-hmm. just eventually became known as a, uh, what it is now, Remembrance Day for all deceased veterans. Okay. So that's when we uh, commemorate not only the uh, people who died in service, but also those veterans who then have since passed away of whatever cause. Um, that started as Decoration Day in 1868 when they, uh, they were starting to decorate the graves of Union veterans. Um, and that became basically widespread by the end of the 19th century, by 1890, every northern state had made it a holiday. Oh, wow. And then in World War I, they, that became generalized, became a day of remembrance for all, you know, the, the dead of all wars. Um, Veterans Day, actually, excuse me, Memorial Day, interestingly enough, is known as Decoration Day uh, until 1971, and it was celebrated on May 30th. Um, and if, remember that, that act I mentioned, the Uniform Monday Act? In 1971, they officially changed it to the fourth Monday of uh, May. Okay. And so since then, it's been, you know, officially uh, Memorial Day, called Memorial Day since 1971, and it's on that uh, fourth Monday of May. The other holiday is not actually a federal holiday. Armed Forces Day is an unofficially United States holiday um, to honor those who are currently serving in the armed forces. And that is the third Saturday in May, began in 1949. So the way it kind of works out is people treat things interchangeably, and so... Veterans Day, they they do commemorate people commemorate deceased veterans, and there are ceremonies and playing of taps and things like that. And so Memorial Day, there's a lot of you know thank you for your service for living veterans. So it does get very confused. Mm-hmm. But there are three separate issues: veterans, veterans who passed, and then veterans uh, or people who are currently serving for the three different holidays. Um, and of course. In my personal calendar, there's my favorite uh, military holiday, and that's June 14th, because that was the most important development in, in American history on June 14th, 1775, the creation of the United States Army. Oh. And you being an so, Army veteran, this is very important for you. Or as we like to say, <laughs> um, So, anyway, that's uh, briefly, I don't, think, I don't think veterans get particularly disturbed by... Um, uh, the things being confused because it's not, um, I mean, it's not, there's really no negative thing about it. It's just they people tend to slot things back and forth and, sure. you know, the, so it's just three different, three different days where people are, are remembering veterans and thanking veterans. Um, and, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think anybody's particularly upset that, uh, it's not quite as clear cut and historical. And, and a lot of people really don't, as, as you've noted, really don't understand the difference between, the holidays, they just know it's the day when we remember our military one way or another. Right. We're speaking with Kurt Geske. He's the head of the Veteran Service Office here in Gaston County and has been in that role for uh, nearly a decade now. Yeah, so I'm curious how many, um, how many clients do you serve? Or maybe a better question is how many estimated uh, veterans are, live in Gaston County? Well, according to the VA, there are about 14,000 uh, veterans in Gaston County right now. Oh. And uh, uh, that number has dropped significantly since I took the job 10 years ago when we had almost 18,000. 
Um, and that is uh, due in part to the basically the passing of the World War II and Korean War generation. Okay. Um, uh, and of course, and now many of our, our older Vietnam veterans uh, are are passing as well. I mean, if you think that the the, uh, the youngest age for a Vietnam veteran is about sixty six now. Okay. So uh, for obvious reasons, you know, sixty six on into the seventies and eighties. That a lot of people are passing from various causes. Some of them are related to their service, like dying of Agent Orange-related you know, conditions from Vietnam. Right. But uh, the it's, it's picked up a bit because we, of course, have a number of uh, post-9/11 uh, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq veterans that are, are uh, joining us. Um, but those are the official numbers, and uh, I and most of the folks who work in veteran services uh, in the state don't really think that highly of the VA numbers. <laughs> Because there are veterans like me. <clears throat> um, I've never applied for, asked for any veteran. I've never had any personal dealings with the VA on my own behalf. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason why the VA would know that I live in Gaston County, North Carolina. Oh, right, yeah. And so, that, so they come up with this number and we kind of go, and you pulled that out of where? Is that just the people who applied for benefits or enrolled in VA healthcare or whatever? That's a good general guide, but that's not a definitive correct number for the number of veterans actually uh, in the county there uh uh, out of the veterans in our county about um 5600 last year got uh some health care through the va system Um, and that percentage has been going up every year both the the number has been going up and then the percentage of living that relative to the percentage of living veterans and so as veterans are getting older from the vietnam generation more and more of them are seeking health care and for the younger generation, the, the folks from Iraq and Afghanistan, many more of them have sought health care right out of the box, right after they got out of service, uh-huh. um, part, in part because many of them have, uh, the, the earlier generation of veterans, unless they actually had a clear service-connected problem, like they got shot, okay, and they did follow-up care with the VA, many of them never used the VA for anything, or they didn't until very late in life. They just never asked for any benefits. Was that a pride thing, or was that a they, they didn't know, or did the services <laughs> not exist then? Uh, I'll give you an example of my dad. You know, he's, he's passed now, but he was the World War II veteran. He saw combat at Iwo Jima and Okinawa, mm-hmm. and he came back in one piece. And then, as he said, he was dumb enough to stay in the reserve, so he was invited back in 1950 for the Korean War. Oh, goodness. But anyway, he didn't get hurt, and so uh, he... Um, went college on the GI Bill, and he bought a house with, you know, GI loan. But otherwise, he never asked the VA for anything until at the end of his life, he, he did spend the last couple of weeks of his life in a VA hospice. Okay. But otherwise, you know, he thought of the VA as something like VA healthcare and, and any other benefits. For the guys who really got messed up or the guys who haven't been fortunate in terms of, you know, they need VA healthcare because they can't afford mm-hmm. healthcare on their own. Okay. And that was the mindset of that generation. So most of them just didn't, unless they came back from the war with like a bullet wound or something, uh-huh. didn't really utilize the VA except for those like GI Bill related benefits. And then the Vietnam guys, a significant number of them never, you know, sought benefits until well into life when they were uh, either having financial problems or health problems. And uh, we still see people, I mean, every week we see new Vietnam veterans we've never seen before. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is amazing because that, I guess I'm done doing a good job of outreach to let everybody know that we're there. But uh, a lot of them, until they got that diagnosis, for example, it never dawned on them. Somebody would say at the VFW, the American Legion, you ought to go make a claim. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Parkinson's disease, and that's an Agent Orange presumptive condition. If you serve in Vietnam, it's automatically service-connected. 
So, you know, they, the, uh, I think only 16% of the Vietnam veterans have filed disability claims. The Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, 45% of them have filed disability claims. Wow. They're, they're better educated more and have more access to information. And there's a push now that services actually encourage people to consider, you know, like talking to the VA as early as possible, like even before discharge. And so those veterans who were kind of in the know realized, I had to sit down and figure out, do I have anything that's different about me than when I went in that I should maybe at least tell somebody about? And they're documenting that, like, you know, hey, I got breathing problems and asthma. I didn't have that until I was downwind of the burn pit in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, so the, the net result is a much larger percentage of those veterans are receiving benefits and a much larger percentage of those veterans relative to the Vietnam guys or certainly the World War II and Korea guys um, are uh, receiving VA health care. Um, and that's, so even though the number of veterans is declining, the number of people receiving services and benefits, particularly healthcare, is actually rising. Does does an increased current day increased awareness does that drive the numbers up a little bit too? Because I'm speaking and when I'm thinking about my grandmother who had she worked in the mills and had brown lung and mm. COPD and never she never um, she never got any kind of compensation for it. There were you know there were movements and lawsuits and stuff like that, but she just she was too prideful to to get any compensation because she was fine, you know, in her eyes and. Um, you know, just uh, it, there seems to be a shift towards using services for, I guess, a younger generation than than the older generation. Do you see that with like the mental health services that the VA offers? In a general sense, medically, I think there's less of uh, less reticence about seeking you know benefits and services from the VA. And in the mental health area, um, the you know there was no such thing as PTSD until I think 1983 or 84. Uh, that's that's when they that's when it was invented. Uh, that's when that's when the diagnostic and statistic manual, the mental health you know guide, actually came up with a, a classification for PTSD. And so earlier generations of veterans um, uh, either self-treated or or didn't do anything about it and suffered the consequences. Um, and uh, uh, it's funny I've had people tell me that PTSD is bogus and it's just something that you know uh, veterans come up with because you can't prove it and that they want to get money. And uh, they said, you know, like my, my dad or my grandfather didn't get have PTSD from World War II. Because <laughs> there was I'll, no language ask, for it then, yeah. Well, and also I'll ask them, you know, like, what, what did your granddad do in World War II? Or, you know, it's like, well, you know, he, he, counted, uh, he counted pallets full of peas at Port Dick, New Jersey. Okay, well, then there's a reason why he didn't have PTSD. Yeah. But when somebody served in, in combat in World War II, you know, the, I'll ask them questions about, like, was your dad the... Uh, um, like quiet and moody sometimes. Did he drink a lot? Did he uh, avoid loud noises and crowds? Did he seem to have like a very short temper or low threshold of whatever? Uh, you know, it's just like, you know, those are some of the symptoms of PTSD. And that generation of folks, they had the benefit of coming home to uh, 16 million Americans served in World War II. And so people like my dad um, came home to his neighborhood and literally all of his friends joined the, the veterans of foreign wars in the American Legion because they'd all served. Mm. And so they all sat in the same bars and played cards and drank beer and they could talk to each other and everybody had the same frame of reference, um, uh, even particularly the folks that served in combat. And so they had, a, they had sort of a built-in support network. Yeah. And then, of course, with the Vietnam War, it was only the, uh, uh, the volunteers, you know, relatively small number compared to the, the draftees and then the draftees who 
came back to a country that didn't want to hear about it. Um, and so they tended to self-medicate or deal with it the best way they could, but they didn't have like much of a support system. And there was, uh, as there still is to a certain extent, a stigma about mental health problems. So it was not, even when they came up with the diagnosis of PTSD, a lot of Vietnam veterans didn't rush right down to the VA to go, I need help with my PTSD. Yeah. But now the younger generation of veterans, um, uh, mental health problems are less stigmatized. PTSD is now sort of mainstream knowledge that, you know, you don't have to be a medical professional or deal with veterans to, to be aware of the existence of the issue. And, uh, um, yeah, including, I say when I, I, some people tell me that they don't believe there is such a thing and I'll ask them if they've ever been in a car accident or if they've had a bad, you know, like a home accident or an industrial accident. And when people say, say that's correct, I'll say, okay, well, uh, you were in a car accident, you got hurt, right? So afterwards, you know, did you find you were like a nervous driver? And did you find yourself looking both ways 27 times before you pulled into the intersection? Mm. Or, you know, did you find yourself kind of breaking out into a cold sweat sometimes when traffic got heavy and stuff? Like, well, that, those are symptoms of PTSD. So it's, it's now, I think, many more people accept it, that it exists. And whether they think there are some people who exaggerated or fake it, uh, it's, it's a lot easier for veterans to come forward and go, you know, I'm not sleeping, I'm drinking a lot, um, I'm angry a lot, and that's not right. I need to have that looked into. I wasn't that way before I went to Afghanistan. Um, and so I think it's a, there are, you're right, I think a lot more people are, are seeking uh, help and uh, and not because they're just trying to get you know, disability compensation, but they recognize that they need some help with it. They just can't work their way through it by themselves. And uh, uh, part of the thing, too, is you know that's one of the things the VA is actually good at. Um, I mean, they, they've had a lot of experience with mental health care. And while there are some issues about actually getting the, the administrative issues, trying to get yourself to the help, like, you know, there aren't enough mental health providers and uh, sometimes scheduling is a problem and somebody who needs mental health help right away, mm-hmm. they'll say, well, we can get you in in March, yeah. you know, and it's October. Um, they, they try to deal with actual emergent needs differently. But if it's just like, I'd really like to talk to somebody I've been bothered by nightmares and say, okay, well, we can get you an appointment five months from now. So there's that kind of an issue. But once you actually get into the care mode, the VA has a lot of people with a lot of special, you know, specialized uh, uh, experience and expertise dealing with PTSD and with other mental health problems. Because um, there are, uh, you know, a fair number of, of veterans that come back from service with uh, mental health issues. And they have gone with mental health issues, but they just got made worse by, you know, being oh, in yeah. service. And there's a whole separate category of PTSD uh, referred to as PTSD MST, which is military sexual trauma. Mm. And uh, obviously, you've been following the news. That's another area where now there is a recognition that there's been a lot of stuff going on with women and men yep. being sexually assaulted or sexually, you know, uh, mishandled uh, while they're in the service. And uh, um, nowadays there's still a stigma, I suppose, and so people are reluctant to seek help. But it's much more common that, that people will come forward and say, I was assaulted in the military, and as a result, ever since that, I didn't go to a war, but I have PTSD. Yeah. And so the services are trying to deal with it while the folks are still in uniform, and then the VA has been dealing with it, and that's why they have a whole separate category of PTSD called military sexual trauma. Um, and uh, what we've seen a lot of are... Uh, um, people coming forward now and advising that they had problems back in the day when they're on active duty 10, 20, 30 years ago. 
And where this comes out is, in addition to disability compensation claims, one of the things I do, which is a little unusual, um, I do a lot of discharge upgrade and records correction actions. Um, that's a sort of a separate topic, but an unusually high number of veterans don't get good discharges when they leave the service. Um, I, could, I could do a whole separate segment on that. But, uh, and the numbers are much higher for Iraq and Afghanistan than they were for Vietnam, believe it or not. And certainly they're much higher than in World War II. So the highest number of, of percentage-wise of people getting bad discharges has been uh, in the last 20 years. Um, and in many cases, there's, you know, the, the reason that there were disciplinary issues was related to PTSD, either conventional PTSD, people coming back from combat and then not being able to conform their behavior to what was expected by the military, or uh, people who were the victims of military sexual trauma who then went a wall, started drinking and doing drugs, things like that, and uh, the kind of stuff that doesn't send you to prison or something, but gets you like a bad discharge from the service because it's you know we don't we don't let you just not show up for work, you know that kind of thing. The problem is if you get a less than honorable discharge, um, uh, there are a bunch of levels of discharge, but if you get uh, below a general under honorable conditions discharge, the VA pretty much will deny you benefits. They may provide health care for a service connected problem, but otherwise. You're not going to get benefits for that. And um, as a result, if you don't get your discharge upgraded, uh, then you are kind of out of luck regardless of what your service was. So you is know, that – oh, sorry. You said you do things a, a little bit differently. Is that is that because of your background as an attorney and then combining that with, like, no, being aware that these um, these upgrades are needed? A lot of veteran service officers in North Carolina will help people with their discharge upgrade. And, of course – it, it depends on what their that individual service officer's background and experience is, the extent to which they can help somebody. Now, you know, I was a I was a litigator for 25 years, and I was a, I was a criminal defense counsel when I was in the army, and so um, it's sort of I, I don't want to say it comes to me naturally, but it's like that's what I used to do. You know, I would represent people, and so I've actually gone up to Washington a couple times. Uh, we have a little grant money available from the state that I, I can spend at my discretion. And I've gone up to Washington a couple times to argue cases in front of the Naval Discharge Review Board and the Army Discharge Review Board um, with, you know, with the veteran at their own expense. Wow. And so that's something. I'm the only veteran service officer in North Carolina who's also a lawyer. So um, they they let me do some things that you probably wouldn't be allowed to do otherwise. Um, But uh, and then I consult with the other the other uh, counties in North Carolina. I get questions all the time. People were handling discharge upgrade cases and they'll run stuff past me and ask me, what do you think of this? Or what should I do for this? Or can you, re- can you read this for me before I submit it? Wow. That's amazing. I didn't know that I'm, about I'm that. also, I was going to say, I'm the, uh, uh, there's a, we have a professional association, North Carolina Association of County Veteran Service Officers. And for some strange reason, for the last 10 years, I've been the staff judge advocate, you know, the legal advisor uh, I'm not a North Carolina lawyer. I'm a California lawyer, but oh. I'm, you know, a lawyer with respect to VA stuff. So I can ad- right. Uh, right. advise them on, on legal issues related to VA stuff without, get, without getting in trouble with the North Carolina authorities for practicing law without a North Carolina license. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see where they'd get a little bit fussy about that. Yeah. So is it, does every county in North Carolina have a, a veteran service office? Um. Currently, there are, I think, 97 out of the 100 counties. Um, Keeping in mind, you know, we do have a couple of counties that have like 20,000 people. Sure. You know, a couple of very tiny counties, because I think there's 97 
it's not, there's a total of 97 counties, uh, or I think it's 95 counties and two tribal organizations, like the Lumbees and I think the, the Cherokees okay. uh, have veteran service officers that belong to the North Carolina Association of County Veteran Service Officers. Um, and so there are a couple of small counties that don't have an office, and uh, they'll, they'll tend to go to. There are also state offices, but um, the North Carolina Department of Military and Veterans Affairs has an office in Charlotte uh, that normally has two service officers. They're down to one right now, but two. But that's for the nine counties of the greater Charlotte area. So usually 99.9% of the veteran services stuff is done by county officers in, in North Carolina. Um, and uh, the size and uh, composition of the office varies from county to county because it's, uh, it's not federally or state mandated. It's up to each county whether or not they want to have an office and how well they staff it, how well they fund it. Um, we're fortunate. Gaston's uh, 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 powers that be have always been extremely supportive of the, the Veterans Service Office. And uh, uh, as a result, we have a fairly robust office staffed with experienced people. Some of the other counties, which I will not name, <laughs> have not been as fortunate and have, have less supportive county governments and uh, perhaps less fully functional offices. I'm not a big fan of metrics for jobs, you know, like you saw this many people or you, you know, there's the, you process this many pieces of paper, but it's a job where you can have sort of a, a, a informal metric of saying, you know, I could, I could sit down and write down the names of a whole bunch of people who are getting healthcare and getting financial benefits that, um, they might've gotten it without me, but on the other hand, they might not have. And so, um, and some people that like got, I've got a number of people uh, got their discharges upgraded, and I'm not sure that without the help of a lawyer, they would have actually been able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see very tangible benefits in the lives of different people in our community. Yeah. Yeah. And I also do something that is a little different. Um, uh, the there's a couple levels of appeals for VA claims. The first level of appeals is Board of Veterans Appeals, which is a panel of administrative veterans law judges, essentially administrative law judges in Washington. And the state office people in Winston-Salem normally uh, um, appear with veterans and argue those cases. Okay. Uh, and they've made a special exception because I kind of like forced them to uh, <laughs> for me. And so they don't normally allow the county people to make those appearances. But um, several years ago, they acknowledged that as a, a lawyer and a, a former Army judge advocate, um, I had a different skill set than a lot of other service officers. And so they allow me to represent uh, gas and veterans. Not, I don't do all of them, but if there's a legal issue or a particularly complicated fact pattern, um, then I will, I will do the Board of Veterans Appeals hearings, which nowadays are done virtually um, oh. because, of, because of COVID. But formerly, I would go up to Winston-Salem for the hearings. Um, can't do it all the time, but you know, just based on time. But for those cases where it would, it would benefit from my actually doing it, I, I was doing that, and I'm still doing that now. Uh, the only difference is that with the virtual hearings, I get to wear uh, a coat and tie, you know, in this COVID era, whatever, yeah. with my usual cargo pants and flip-flops. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Nobody can see what I'm wearing below the waist. So, <laughs> Well, at least you're wearing pants. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, am, I do. Out of respect for the judge, I do wear pants. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, in my home office, you know, it's uh, like a coat. And that's, in fact, that's the uh, pretty much the only time I've worn a coat and tie in the last 18 months. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Kurt, I've learned so much from you <laughs> and from this. And I really 
do want to talk more about some other topics in the future. So maybe you'll join us in the future for something. Honestly, anything you want to talk about. Speaking with Kurt Geske today on Savvy Citizen. He is the head of Gaston County's Veterans Service Office.